I'm Joanne Wilson, and this is Positively Gotham Gal. Small, meaningful conversations with women entrepreneurs about their approach to life, business, and everything in between. Rachel Sheckman is the founder of Story, a retail concept in New York City that has the point of view of a magazine, changes like a gallery, and sells things like a store. Rachel's journey to create Story was informed by a successful 10-year career as a consultant and a chance encounter that unearthed the startup she never started, prompting her to finally make that leap into starting the business she's been dreaming about since college. You'd think that after much waiting and consideration, Rachel's transition into opening Story would be a breeze, but nothing in entrepreneurship ever is. Rachel's ability to have a sense of humor when things went wrong, paired with her hunger for learning, opened up a new door for her to make her business a reality and a real cutting-edge reality that retailers across the globe come look and see what Rachel did at the story. So, Rachel. So, Joanne. Yes. You have created something that no one else has created, and you were way ahead of the time. And by the way, you were profitable from day one. Not day one, but first year. First year is day one, as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's very hard to be profitable from the day you walk in the door. Um, But let's go backwards and talk about how you sort of got to this, because I think all the things you've done have connected to where you are today. You went to school. I went to school. Did you get through school? I went through school. (laughs) I got through school. That's good. I still don't know how. I kind of had nightmares sometimes being like, do I really have a degree, let alone a degree in economics, which is is even the funnier part of it. (laughs) I don't know what's more funny that I actually graduated than I had a degree in economics. That's amazing. Yeah. I would not think of you as a degree in economics. definitely not. So I went to Colorado College, which is an amazing small liberal arts college um, in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, of all places. And the reason why I ended up studying economics was because at a small liberal arts college, they don't have a business major. So I could take all of the business classes and get credit for them towards an economics degree. Um, why do you want to be a business major? Well, I just knew I would be an entrepreneur. Like I came out of the womb as an entrepreneur. Well, like, your, your parents were entrepreneurs. My mom. Your mom was yeah. an entrepreneur. Yeah. So I'm four generations of retail. And for whatever reason, like, it was never even a question, like, what do I want to be when I grow up? Like, of course, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I, I didn't know exactly what. I knew it, it would have something to do with finding things and selling them. I went to my the Jacob Javits Center for my bat mitzvah favors wholesale at 12 years old. And you picked all your, your favors. I picked my favorites. And you're with your mom, who was in that business. Yep. My mom trained with Giorgio and Joel when they launched Dean and DeLuca back in the day when gourmet food wasn't even really a thing. And she trained with them and followed them around. And the best part of the story is my mother can't cook. But um, but yeah, so she, she's she been in the gourmet food and corporate gift business for now over, I think, probably 40 years. Which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And so you- I wouldn't be doing anything that I'm doing without her. Well, it made, it made a major impact on you. Yeah. And so you went to college, which is actually a super cool program. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's a really amazing program. And then you got to the other side and then you came back to New York and you were like, huh. Where's my entrepreneurial? So I first did a pit stop in Connecticut working with my mom. Mm-hmm. So I love to cold call. It's <laughs> a bizarre fun fact. And that I, is not surprising. That I like to cold call? No, not at all. But I like that you do. Well, it's not surprising because you know me, but it would be surprising for people who don't because no one likes to cold call. No, it's the worst. Um, so 
uh, I went and worked with my mom. And back then, she was doing non-perishable gourmet food gifts and customizing them for businesses. So it was anyone from the chairman of American Express to a conference, to an insurance company, to Mercedes dealership. And I thought, if she's customizing you know, this assortment and coming up with marketing solutions for these companies and designing like really cool keepsake packaging. It wasn't like the cheesy wicker basket. It was like back when people had DVDs, it was like this faux leather, you know, box that could store DVDs. And it was 99. So internet 1.0 days. And there was like gourmetmarket.com and send.com and I remember them all. Boo.com. Yep. <laughs> and I'd call and I'd say, hi, I'm the VP of e-commerce for Giftcore. We'll customize product for you, name your margin, name your price point. You don't have to hold any inventory and there's no minimums. Like, who's going to say no to that? So the good news is... <laughs> nobody. Nobody. So the good news is everyone's like, awesome, let's meet. I'll never forget, I was at the National Retail Federation Conference and I walked up to the head of merchandising for 1-800-Flowers. She had no idea who I was. And I was like, hey, I'll make a deal with you. I'll take a day off of work if you do and I'll bring you to Hartford, Connecticut. <laughs> Um, so the good news is I got all these meetings. The bad news is I had no idea what a VP of e-commerce did. <laughs> so $20,000 of internet conferences later, uh, I figured it out. I launched that division of her company and she did literally 1-800-Flowers, FTD, Costco, Neiman Marcus, Bloomingdale's, the list goes on and on and on. And then I was like, A, my mom and I are going to kill each other if I stay here much longer because we're so similar and we know what happens. And then, uh... And I like her too much, so I didn't want that to happen. And B, uh, you know, I say she likes chips and salsa and I like handbags and shoes. And I also didn't really feel like living in my hometown um, right after college. So I moved to New York and I worked on a startup I never started. That's right. And what was that startup all about? It was called BoutiqueStyle.com. Maybe the world's worst name ever. That's okay. Everyone had bad names. Everyone had bad names. Um, and this was the economics major in me. <laughs> I was like, something's not right here. People are raising all this money and they can't answer basic questions. Many of them don't have business plans. So like, how is this working? And I was like, well, maybe- oh, Isn't that true today? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Joke's on me. But then I was like, all right, so maybe I'll build a business plan, get like brands signed up and then go raise money. So I spent eight months going to like every trade show under the sun, um, to just learn about different brands and designers and small businesses. And so the idea behind Boutique Style was, in the simplest terms, an incubator meets a co-op for emerging brands and designers. So it was a physical retail store that sold things. It then had a B2B side to the company where we represented some of the brands and small businesses we worked with. There would be a storytelling element to it where there'd be signage and narratives next to all the product in the store. There was potentially a restaurant that was a part of it that was, you know, later in the game. And so I had met with over 300 different brands across men, women's home, gift and kids. Um, so all those different categories I got a chance to learn about. And then my first investor meeting was in April of 2000, the day after the market crashed. Really great time. It was awesome. <laughs> They say timing's everything. And you know what? It was the single biggest blessing in disguise because of so many things. It was too early. I I it would have never it would have never worked, worked for a myriad of reasons. And so I had pitched this guy, Ken Walker, who had started Walker Group, um, which was a well-known architecture and design firm. And he goes, listen, I love your vision and your timing sucks. <laughs> so <laughs> hang out with me, do some retail trend spotting, find interesting retail brands, 
um, that could help bigger companies differentiate themselves and we'll figure it out. And then fast forward through him, I met Ava Lorenzotti and she had a catalog called Vive and it introduced European luxury brands to the U.S. direct mail market. I remember that one too. I have all the catalogs. That's hilarious. You've kept all the catalogs. They're insane. A, she was ahead of her time. She was way B, ahead of her time. B, she has sick taste. C, and they're some, freaking stunning. And some of the companies still exist. Yeah. Yeah. And so after you did that, um, working for him, I mean, really, your concept originally, which is the boutique business, is what you ended up doing. Yeah. Yeah. A 2.0 version of it. Yeah. 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 It didn't have – the original idea didn't have the sponsorship component to it, I don't think. But it's funny. Like, I – there are so many things like like the cafe component. Like, you know, I, I found the old business plan. And by business plan, I think it was a matter of like eight poorly designed PowerPoint slides. Um, I remember I designed my logo for it in Word using like <laughs> insert shape and then you fill it with different colors. Yeah. Well, you figured out how to do it. I did. <laughs> That's impressive. Yes. That's impressive. So you um, work with Thief, and how long did you work with them? I was there for three years. I did buying, and I got to do across categories. And I keep on mentioning that because it's not how you're trained no, to be a buyer. Is, no, you're trying to do things very yeah. much in a silo. You're like the men's sport sock buyer. Correct. Um, which I think is absurd. You are the large size denim buyer. It makes me crazy. Yeah. But it's archaic. Well, it's interesting is that I had a friend who was in a store the other day and he just took a picture and he's just like, these buyers suck and department stores are dying. And it was just like racks and racks of crap. Yeah. And, you know, all these department stores have not let buyers be creatives anymore. They're so concerned. Don't get me started They're on that like, topic. Yeah. I, you won't be able to shut me up. Well, well they, they've become um, analysts instead of creatives. Yeah. I mean, when I was at Macy's, they were all creative people until they you know, went private and then they freaked out and everyone couldn't be creative anymore, which is ridiculous. Yep. Yeah. So you I were able to do cross-platform, which is amazing because that experience allowed you to continue you know, feeding your desire to understand every single brand in the planet. Yeah. And I had freedom, right? Like, so I said to Ava, like, oh, I love Santa Maria Novella. Can I go pitch them? You know, like I, I she, I love she what products. was great about her is she empowered people to be entrepreneurs within the company. And then what happened was, you know, the internet was growing and growing and growing and they had merged with a company back then called indulge.com. And I got to take over some of the like online marketing bit. And what was interesting about that was um, I don't, you know, there were no like interactive designers. There were programmers, right? And any imagery or creative we had was from the print book. And so we started doing email campaigns. And so I'd go over to the tech team and say, oh, I think we should do this or that with the merchandise. And they just weren't getting it. So I taught myself Photoshop. So I'm like, you know, I need to speak their language if I'm going to want to get the sell through and the outcome that I want as a merchant. And I think my aha moment there was that whether you're a 50 person company or a $50 billion company, that organizations are like the UN without a translator and marketing speaks Japanese and finance speaks Swahili and merchandising speaks Spanish. And even if a company's kicking butt, there's so much left on the table by lack of translation and integration. And I think, you know, I left Vive and I went to consult for six months which turned into a 10-year-long career. But when I look back and think, like, how the hell did six months turn into 10 years? It was, 
you know, marketing, merchandising, and business development became the three languages, the three silos, the three departments, whatever you want to call them. And to me, they were always one. They weren't three. Right. Um, and but I learned you, a lot of that at Vive. And But what you're talking about is similar in any single company. Yeah. You know, oh, for sure. Yeah. Any industry. Yeah. It's this work org thing. It's the, you know, there, there's not a layer that talks to each other. And because all this, you know, uh, businesses fall downstream. Right. Because there's no connection. Yep. I like it. The UN. That's a great way of a good anal- analogy. I like that analogy. That's really good. Thanks. That's a good one, Rachel. So, Thank you, Joanne. Yes. So for 10 years, you were, um, who did you do work for? So my first client, so like my idea of superstars, no disrespect to Brad Pitt, um, mm-hmm. are like Howard Schultz and Angela Aarons. I appreciate that. And so at the time, the superstar of the moment was Marcia Kilgore, who founded Bliss Boz, who founded Bliss Boz after starting it in one room, sold it to LVMH, then sold it again to Starwood. Um, and so through a comedy of errors, I ended up meeting her. She was doing a waxing demo at Saks on a holiday weekend. <laughs> um, I said she had to wax my eyebrows because I needed to know her. Um, and... Yeah, long story short, she invited me to a dinner. I was convinced she invited the wrong Rachel, mm-hmm. and I showed up on time for a change, and she asked me <laughs> if I wanted to find merchandise for their catalog, and their catalog at the time had like an annual circ of $25 million. Um, I remember that And catalog. it was coveted, right? It was – because you had Bliss products, but it was like – it was highly curated skincare, Extremely. makeup, everything. Yes. And so my – the blue. Yeah. So my six months there turned into uh, two and a half years, and then I ended up being the senior buyer for the catalog as a consultant. And then Diane von Furstenberg became head of this Council of Fashion Designers of America, and I knew the then executive director, now CEO, Stephen Kolb, and he said, hey, I found an old proposal that you had sent my predecessor, and it was basically a different kind of version Uh, It was kind of the B2B side of the startup I never started that I wanted to do for the CFDA. And it was called the Business Services Network back then, and it's still around. They renamed it, but it's like a much bigger part of CFDA now. Um, So DVF brought me on to do that. Then Blake Mikowski at Tom's hired me to run partnerships as a consultant when he had 20 employees and was blowing up. Then I met Kevin Ryan and Susan Line and went to Gilt Group, and I was like, it was crazy. And then I worked with bigger companies like Gap and Kraft and JCPenney and AOL. And I, and it was really like that UN translator analogy came to me during that part of my career because I was like, why the hell are people hiring me? I don't have an MBA. I didn't work at McKenzie or Bain. And I think it's because I didn't seek being a consultant. Um, and I think it's like, you know, I remember one of my most proud things in my entire career was this partnership I did when I was at Guild Group. And it was really looking at a merchandise um, deal with Threadless. It was a strategic partnership. And the entire methodology behind it was based on CPA analytics, as if I was doing a Google AdWord buy, Mm -hmm. as opposed to how a merchant would typically value, you know, I look at success, which would be sell through. Um, And I thought, what if we got paid to acquire customers instead of paying to acquire customers and leverage merchandising as a strategic tool? Um, I remember the then CEO at the time, who shall remain nameless, uh, was like, well, I inherited you. I didn't hire you. So I'm just going to give you the toughest category. And if you can make it work with that, then I guess maybe there's merit to your ideas. And uh, and meanwhile, you're a consultant. 
meanwhile, I'm a consultant. <laughs> so uh, at the time, it ended up becoming their single biggest ever member acquisition partnership. And did that person come back and say, of course not. Of course not. I think what's also is interesting is that you are a very, you understand the industry like no other, and you have a very forward thinking thought process about it. Thank you. And you really understand the retail wholesale world in a way that most people don't see it. I mean, you see it from the cloud. And so all of these companies and you can use the UN as the analogy, but they're so in the trenches that they can't get out of the trenches. And so to bring in someone with fresh and new and going, why are you doing this? It's like, okay, we should just hire her to come in and do this for a short period of time. You couldn't work in those companies. I don't think you are actually uh, employable. Thank you. <laughs> you know? I appreciate that. <laughs> but I don't think you think you're employable either. But what I did mm-hmm. was, what I'll tell you what was interesting, right? So 80% of my time was spent in all of these companies. Right. And what was interesting is I'd negotiate a job title and I'd get business cards, right? So it, it, the CFDI was vice president uh, of marketing, I think, or business development. Um, do you have all those cards somewhere? I think I do. In uh, <laughs> some box. Um, you should put them in, a, in like a – I, I should. should. Yeah, totally I totally get should. Them, um, like, you know, put in a, uh, a an art box. And I'd get an office there um, because I did want to have a sense of community and I did – in order to get stuff done, right? No one wants to meet with like the consultant when you're talking about no, no, these you have to have operational things. So I needed the office to develop relationships internally. And I needed the job title to get the meetings. And because, you know, if I want to meet with the VP somewhere else, they're more likely to take a meeting with another VP than with the random consultant. Um, And those two things proved true. And I think when you're, you know, people thought I was an employee in many of these places. But you weren't. And and I could mash up different departments because guess what? I wasn't a threat. I wasn't going after their job. I wasn't going after their bonus that... um, and it was really, really remarkable. So I think like, I think 80% of me is employable. And as long as I have that 20% freedom that I don't feel trapped and I can still, you know, taste other things on the buffet, mm-hmm. then I'll be fine. Well, you don't have to worry about it because you have your own company. I do, but maybe one day I won't. I doubt it. So anyhow, <laughs> so after 10 years. I hope no one listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> so after 10 years. You're Are like, you okay, this? Uh, of course, after 10 years pulling out the old boutique idea and you're bringing it up to date. So I was, it was July of 2011. I was driving from Redmond um, to Seattle in Washington state with Blake. Um, and we had just been at Microsoft uh, for a meeting um, and he looked at me and he's like, enough of this someday shit. And he's like, you have had this idea in your head for as long as I've known you. I mean, you've worked out all your theories on your clients. Like, you know, get some confidence and shut up and just do this already. Um, so that was July 2011. And then on October 29th, 2011, I signed a lease. How bad was it like? What was it like this, signing that lease? Well, if you really want to know what happened was I didn't get the lease I wanted. And the funny thing is I didn't – the lead, the deal fell apart the day I was supposed to sign it. And it was the day before my meeting with my first sponsor, potential sponsor, which was Beth Comstock at GE. Mm-hmm. And when you're a consultant, you're accused of being the idea girl. Um, and I was like, oh, my God. I've told everyone I'm doing this because I had a lease and now I don't have a lease. 
it was like miserable. But again, everything happens for a reason. I agree. And with I that. got the most amazing space on the planet. It you did, do have an incredible space. It, it did. Thank you. It did eat up every freaking dollar I had. Um, but actually, I, did I ever tell you the story of how I opened on December 1st? Yes, but please tell us again. Okay. <laughs> so I signed the lease and I was talking to to my best friend, Ben, and I was like, oh my God, I'm so excited for Christ- my first Christmas. He's like, dude, like you're not going to be open for Christmas this year. And I was like, totally. He's <laughs> like, you got no electricity. <laughs> you got no floor. Like, w- really? And then, by the way, you need like inventory and stuff. And I was like, I'll figure it out. And so I was like, all right, instead of filing for all the permits, why don't I just use my landlord's team and like I need a shell of a space. And then I called up Mark Kushner, another good friend of mine. And I was like, hey, help me with some simple plans. And we poured cement. We didn't, but the guy did. And uh, <laughs> and we figured it all out. But then I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> I need inventory and a name. And like, obviously, I had thought of the name for my company or Stefan Sagmeister gets credit for that. But um, but I didn't have the trademark yet. So there was no freaking way I'm being like, oh, I have a store called Story without a trademark. Um, and I had no inventory. So I think after a couple glasses of wine, I kind of thought, you know, we're the same people who live offline who live online. So if tech companies get beta, why can't we have beta? So I also left out the part that Ben bet me $20,000 in in sponsorship money, which back then was a lot of money for, for, for sponsorship and story. Um, and so, uh, I was like, all right, I'm just going to call ourselves a startup store beta because tech companies get start beta. I want beta. Mm-hmm. I want and then beta. I was like, then I'm just going to reach out to startups and sell their merchandise. Keep in mind, this was pre-Warby store, pre-anything. So we sold Birchbox and Bobble Bar and Art Space and Quirky. And um, on December 1st at like 4.30 something. You opened. We opened. Do you have heat? Heat? Oh, heat. No, like yes, we had heat. We yeah. had heat. Yes, yeah. we had heat. How many of those companies still exist today? I think four out of the five. That's not bad. Yeah. That's not bad at all. I actually think the one that doesn't exist is the one out of all of them that probably should exist. But that's another story for another it day. It has to be a perfect storm. It doesn't always work out that way. Yes. First movers. Poor first movers. First movers, for sure. I know. There really needs to be, there really needs to be a first mover hall of fame. Because think of it, right? You guys invested. UPOC was Twitter before Twitter. UPOC was Twitter before it was Twitter. And so, right, the globe.com was what? Like, I'm not, you know, I just think that there's generations. I'm not saying that companies that are the companies today don't deserve the credit. Of course they do. But there's no archive. There's no history. There's no credit. Like, like what Ben Kaufman, and I'm not just saying this because he's my friend, what he did with Quirky is remarkable. And at some other point in time, someone's going to figure out what worked and didn't work about it and then figure out a profitable way to make it work. Absolutely. And I mean, I, Gordon has had several businesses that were way ahead of its time. Exactly. I so mean, where's the third, Hall of Fame? I don't know. It's like put it in a, put it in a drawer, mark in your calendar six years from now to take right. it out of your drawer. Right. I mean, the thing is, as an investor, you have to be smart enough to understand. Timing. Timing. And also like, I don't want to invest in first generation stuff. And I know when it's first generation right. stuff. But as a VC, you kind of have to because yeah. LPs are giving you money right. to invest in those type of things with the hope A, it might make it, or B right. is if that doesn't, you're prepared for the next round. Yep. So, you know, it's 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 multiple layers of the whole thing. So after you did the startup at Story, what was the next one? Well, the funny thing is this is a week later the headline was, Can a startup store reinvent retail? 
And I was like, I don't even know how to run this company, let alone reinvent it. So that was quite the anxiety attack. Um, but uh, February 1st, 2012 was our first story, and it was Love Story. Um, and the sponsor is a company who actually is no longer. It's the only sponsor we've had that that doesn't exist any longer. Um, and that was Nerve.com, the okay. dating site. So after that was Color Story. Then we had New York Story. Then we had an amazing story called Project Pop-Up uh, with Mayor Bloomberg in the city of New York. Then GE was really our first Fortune 50 company to to get behind story and we did making things story. So I think we're at like 38 different stories we've done now in six years. And each of them are last for how long? Anywhere from three to eight weeks. And how long does it take to install these? On average, about seven to 10 days, give or take. And so you essentially have, I mean, I know what you have, but to explain what you have is a variety of vendors that are part of the story. So be it a love story, it's all these products that are under the same um, vertical that has to do with love. And so it could be anything from a bookstore to, or like a incredible fireplace. It's brand new and is plugged into the wall and has a beautiful fire behind it. Like I knew you had that once. And so like any of these different products that are brand new, cutting edge, you bring to the story and you put it all together and it is definitely an interactive experience. And people go in and buy the purchases. But the good news is everyone has to sponsor it in order to be into the store. So the way that the model works is um, – a bit like that. There's So there's two different things. So um, the majority of our stories are sponsored, but not everyone. So okay. about 80% are sponsored and 20 aren't. Um, for no other reason than, you know, a combination of both timing. And sometimes there's something we want to do, right? So like I really wanted to do a social impact story. So we did good story. Um, I wanted to do one on feminism. So we did F word story. Mm-hmm. Um but the way the model works is, you know, I call our model retail media mm-hmm. and really, you know, magazines, newspapers, websites, you know, they make money from selling ads. And so sponsors are our version of an ad. Um, and so we charge sponsorship fees. And then magazines express an editorial point of view through pictures and writing articles and our editorial narrative is merchandise curation and then event programming. Um, And so the way I've, you know, we look at what we do as experience per square foot. If you come in and you walk out with a shopping bag and you buy something, great. And if you don't, that's also fine, right? Because I'm not like living and breathing and dying by the transaction. You can't. Nobody can anymore. Nobody can. Yeah. Right. But your store is also an Instagrammable moment. I mean, which I think is really important for shoppers. I mean, where do you see the future of retail? You're the perfect person to ask. I think it's more event-based. I, I recently went to ComplexCon, which I'm obsessed with, um, which for people who don't know, it's like Comic-Con for culture and sneakerheads. Mm-hmm. Um, so think of it as a music festival meets a consumer-facing trade show. Okay. Um, meets... Uh, Food meets a conference, right? So you can hear an interview with um, Pharrell. You can go listen to Jaden Smith perform. You can drink beer. You can shop. Um, I just loved I loved everything about it. You know, BeautyCon, you know, is that for beauty and millennials? 
Um, That's very cool. Gordon and I thought about putting on a conference like this 15 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Very like, what is the future? Yeah. And that's what that is. Yeah. I wrote an op-ed piece that hopefully comes out Monday and it's called The Future Store is Not a Store. Um, It isn't. Yeah. I don't know how my friends in retail are, if I still have friends in retail after Monday, but let's see. Well, I think, but you know what, but I think they all understand that. Um, you're, they totally understand that. No, they don't. They do. Not the CEOs. There's no way that they don't physically understand that. I don't believe that. I think that they see the numbers and they know exactly that they've got to reinvent themselves. But here's the here's the problem that's happening that no one's talking about, in my opinion. And you should probably just shut me up because I won't be able to stop talking about it. There's a lot of like lipstick going on the pig right now, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I don't care. You could put, you know, a water park in the downstairs of your store. Until you go back to basics, right, and say, hey, what does our org chart look like? What does compensation structures look like? What does training look like? What does customer service look like? And what does merchandising look like? Unless you change those things, you're not going to find a long-term solution. I completely agree with you. And no one's sitting here. If we were to, if we were to like spend four hours whiteboarding a multi-billion dollar, multi-brand, multi-category store, there's... 80% of that org chart would have different job titles and compensation structure. I completely agree. So it's interesting. So why is no one doing it? Well, it will be interesting to see what um, Supreme does. I'm obsessed with Supreme. I think that what he has built is genius. You know, these small um, additions, they drop. If you don't, if you're not in it, you're out of it. Remember we walked into Noah that time? We were walking around the Lower East Side and we walked into Noah. They had just opened. He comes out of Supreme. Well, it's the same uh-huh. concept, which is... Here's the small, you know, 24 pieces. We're in, we're out, we're done. And so I look at Supreme and they've now been given what, like $500 million to play with? Who was it with? Was it Catterton? No. No, it wasn't Catterton. Carlisle Group. Carlisle Group. Exactly. So they put in $500 million into this company. They're going to expand, obviously, into Tokyo and London and Hong Kong and, you know, all across the globe. Where did he come from before? James? Supreme guy. He's a New Yorker. I don't know where he came from. No, um, I mean, not like where, to, like work-wise. I think he was pretty young when he started that okay. company. Um, we can go on Wikipedia and find out. There we go. Um, so he, I look at that company and I think, okay, so you, what made you successful, you have to maintain what made you successful. And so I remember looking back at the days of Macy's when I was there, which is each department had five or six buyers. And granted, we were siloed. You know, I was the buyer of large size women's denim and swimwear. But I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. At the end of the day, I had to make money. Right. And if I didn't make money and I wasn't profitable, I'd be fired. Right. It was that simple. And I got bonuses based on that. And so I look at Supreme and I'm like, well, why aren't they rethinking an org chart where each of those buyers have so much money to be totally creative? And they have to put out 102 different editions a year in only short sleeve t-shirts or only shorts or only in this. And they have one person they work with who gets the goods in and gets them distributed. And the other person is the financial person. But you let that buyer be super freaking creative. And if they fall and they fail, you fire them. Yeah. I mean, that's what has to happen. I mean, there's just so much of this hand-holding and like micromanagement yep. that no one's creative anymore. Yeah. 
it's a huge problem in these stores. They're disasters. And so um, I agree with you. They have to really be ripped down to its nails. I was at a store recently um, that I love going into. It's a department store. And I love it because it's always quiet and it's easy to shop and they have good brands. Um, and nobody's there. And nobody's there. And, <laughs> and so I go and I'm shopping, right? And I like lots of different things, right? So it's like, oh, a little Vince and a little, you know, Theory and a little this and a little, you know, Eileen Fisher and DKNY and whatever. And so I was like trying on Vince, but I needed a different size and something from Eileen Fisher. And she's like, well, I can't give it to you because oh. this is my area. And I don't get commission for that area. So I can't. They do that at Bon Marche in Paris. And I was like, you know what? Like, we're not in 1962. Like, come on. This is a joke. And I'm just like, I'm here, I'm shopping, and I want to give you my money. And you are making it incredibly hard for me to give you my money. Um, That's a problem. It's a problem. It is a huge problem. So out of... And ask me if I went back since. No, of course you didn't go back since. It happened to us in Bon Marche. I was like, can we have that? Oh, that's not my department. I was like, well, where's the person who is the department? Oh, here's my favorite story. Again, I won't name the name. It's a high-end department store in the city. Um, and I go in the store and I was like, two questions. So I asked if they had one a designer, a sheesh. And they're like, oh, I don't know. And I was like, all right, well, is there like a directory or someone you can ask? And she's like, oh, well, it's probably on five. And I was like, well, if you don't know that you sell it, like, how do you know it's on five? Like, I don't feel like running around the store. So then I was like, where's Gucci? Do you know, I asked three people in the store where Gucci was. Gucci is the freaking hottest brand on the planet right now. It is. They didn't know what it is. Three different answers. That says something about management, doesn't it? I mean, you are right. I think what you're saying is this stuff has to be like pulled down to the studs and completely rethought of. And I don't know if any of these companies like are, are, I don't know if any of them are capable of it. I mean, that's a huge fundamental shift. I mean, what has to change is on the floor and the merchandise. But to change the entire back end of the work org chart, that's really, really difficult. After, you know, God knows how many hundreds of years these, right. these have been built. But I think you're absolutely right. I think we're also at a time where we're seeing the shift from saying, well, we've been around since 1789. It's right. like, really? Because you're not going to be around from 2018 right. onward. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you change. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely. So as your business has been... You know, you have a really interesting career because everything that you've done, in many ways, your desire and um, passion about educating yourself in all of this has allowed you the success that you've had in the story because all the dots have connected. What happened in your business that you completely were not expecting? Not that you gave much thought to it once you opened it up how hard it is to manage people. <laughs> no, but more specifically, not necessarily just, you know, I had never managed anyone before, right? And I'll be the first to say it's probably not the thing that comes most natural to me. Um, although, you know, I've spent a lot of time working on it in many forms. Um, but here's here's what the hardest thing was, right? Like I always use the analogy that when I started Story, I was like the owner of a sports team. Would play, you know, getting players on the field, but there's no coaches on the bench because you can't hire a coach if you don't know what game you're playing. And the model's never been done before. So I was like learning on the clock and managing. But here's the thing. Not only are you trying to figure out which job functions and whatnot were necessary that might be a little atypical for retail, is 
it's a huge emotional intelligence kind of, you know, psychological profile that's, that's quite different. Um, and what makes you successful in traditional retail is not what makes you successful at story and what makes you get bonuses and promotions at traditional companies doesn't happen at story because like, you know, we're about fail often and ask for help, right? Like I'm asking people who've been in careers, you know, in jobs for 20 years, right? Come to me and be like, here's my to-do list. Can you prioritize it? Because the reality is there's so much happening and so much changing. And we want to be able to react to cool opportunities, right? Like we just had the opportunity to sell merchandise from Colette in Paris. And then it was like, oh, okay. So like, I need to be able to like turn around a PO and then figure out like, okay, da, 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 you know, um, quite quickly. And so it took a while. I mean, my sister came up with some really cool tactics in terms of hiring people from the store that were quite non-traditional to figure out some of these things. Like one thing I just have to tell you, cause it's cool. So she does group interviews mm -hmm. for, um, we call our, what a sales associate would be a storyteller. So, um, she always puts too few chairs out because she wants to see who in the group stands up to take initiative to go say, oh, we need more chairs. That's a great one. Right? Or she'll lock the door um, when the interview starts and there's always people who are late. So she sees who gets up to go and let that person in. Um, because it's about being proactive, not reactive. Right. And you don't capture that on a resume. And what you want in your story are very self-starting peoples that are entrepreneurs in your entrepreneurial store. Yeah. Yeah, completely. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>Thanks to Rachel for chatting with us today. If you're in New York City, you must visit the story. It's located on 10th Avenue and 19th Street. It's an incredible, unique retail experience. I can't recommend it enough. Thank you again to all of you listeners for joining us this week. Stay up to date with Positively Gotham Gal. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. See you next week.